You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. We're going to start today's episode with a recap of what we've covered so far in this somewhat extended series on golf in the Netherlands. Initially, with the help of Mike Clayton and Frank Pont, we explored how some of the very best courses in the Netherlands match up to the very best elsewhere. We then looked at the geological and historical origins of the Dutch grounds for golf, specifically the backstory of the North Sea dunescape, the pockets of glacial sand that provide safe harbour for many of continental Europe's finest heathen courses, and of course, the man-made polderland, the very definition of Dutch landscape. Over the course of the first two episodes with Robin Bargman, we took a sneak peek at the early game of golf and the historical, familial, political, sociological and sporting ties that have existed between the Netherlands and the wider United Kingdom. Most recently, we have endeavoured to chart the pioneers of Dutch golf and the foundation stories of some of the early golf courses in the Netherlands running up to the start of World War I. Over the course of researching this series, I uncovered two interesting stories that illuminate the direct and indirect influence that the Second World War had on Dutch golf. The first story for consideration today concerns the life and times of a gentleman called Daniel Wolf. Businessman, gun runner, opponent of National Socialism, advocate for the European Jewish community, and a non-golfing golf course developer. Steve Ziven joins us from Chicago to discuss his recent McKellar magazine article titled Rockets Over Wild Farm, which details the story of Daniel Wolf. Robin Bargman also joins us for one final cameo to look at how Hitler's Atlantic Wall project impinged upon many of the Dutch Lynx golf courses. Without any further delay, it's time to hear more about the life and times of Daniel Wolf with Steve Ziven. So over to you, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the embryonic stages of, of Royal Hague. So Royal Hague, as a golf club, had, had existed before World War II. A different location from where the, where the current club and, and course are, are located. The original Royal Hague layout was destroyed by the Atlantic Wall, um, which I think most of your viewers are familiar with, built by the Nazis to theoretically you know, impede an Allied landing on the shores of Europe. Where Royal Hague now is, is a different golf course. Uh, was a different golf course, and it, it was created by a man named Daniel Wolf, who built it on his own personal property to be a public course. He did this between 1937 and 1939, which was obviously, in retrospect, not the ideal time to to embark on a major golf building project. Daniel Wolf is a really fascinating character in himself. He's um, a very wealthy uh, Dutch Jew who had purchased this property. In, in Wassenaar, which is a, a very nice suburb just to the north of The Hague. This property encompassed a couple hundred acres of rolling dunes. And, and in, in this area of the Netherlands, which is famously flat, the dunes actually extend inland from the sea for about a kilometer and a half or so. So inland far enough that you know, subsequently the Atlantic Wall wasn't going to, did, did not end up destroying this golf course. And, and the, the dunes are, are incredibly heaving there. If anyone's been to Royal Hague, you know, in, in a country that's almost completely flat, you kind of arrive there and all, suddenly there's just giant dunes stretching as far as you can see until you get to the ocean, which is you know, about a kilometer and a half away. So, so Daniel Wolf purchases this property in 1937. He's not actually really a golfer, per se. He, he seems to have dabbled in golf a bit, but it wasn't his passion. He was a sportsman. Uh, horses were really what, what interested him. He had 
uh, sponsored an Olympian in the 1936 Olympics, famously held in, in Berlin. He was a man who actually came from fairly humble, uh, a humble background. His, his, his parents were, or his father at least, was kind of a mid-level Dutch bureaucrat and working in, in, in the customs office. Daniel Wolf was not a stellar student. You know, he kind of grew up in his middle-class background, but his first big break in life was meeting his wife. <laughs> and his wife was a member of the uh, Vandenberg family, who are a very wealthy Dutch family who were involved in the foundation of Unilever, uh, amongst other Dutch companies. So he kind of came into wealth through marriage. And, and his first business was whiskey. So, And from there, because of the need for whiskey barrels, he got into the timber business. So it wasn't terribly lucrative, but it became lucrative when he uh, struck an exclusive contract with the Dutch government to be the, the supplier for the Dutch railways of, of timber and railroad ties. And that was kind of in the 1920s, early 30s. So he, he's kind of prominent to Dutch society, started rising. At this point, he still, had, still doesn't own the, own the property, which became Royal Hague. The 1930s is when Daniel Wolf kind of really hit his stride as a person. So he's young at this point. He's in his 30s. And he suddenly becomes like one of these, one of these figures who's got his hands in all of these historic or subsequently really historic events. Um, the first being the Spanish Civil War. So the, the Spanish Civil War, which breaks out in the early 1930s, the Effectively, the, the elected Republican government government of Spain, which which leaned heavily left, was challenged by the fascists under Franco. The European states worried about this blowing up into a world war, you know, pledge neutrality. Although uh, Hitler and Mussolini, although agreeing to neutrality, ignored it and were supplying Franco and the fascists. While the Western European countries, Holland being one of them, you know, kept in the neutrality agreement. Daniel Wolf. You know, sensing a, a moral imperative here, became the chief arms supplier to the Spanish Republicans to fight the fascists. Kind of under the Dutch government's noses, because the Dutch government was, was staying out of it, he was the principal, certainly the largest supplier of arms to the, the Spanish Republicans. He then also becomes the largest contributor to the Dutch political parties who were challenging the rise of National Socialism in Holland, there's just like in Germany, there was a rising uh, uh, fascist movement. There was a, a rise of the National Socialist Party in Holland, and he donated millions of dollars to the parties to oppose those who subsequently won in the elections. So, at this point, even though he's he's kind of staying below the radar, he's not a household name in Holland. You know, people are are kind of increasingly sensing that he's he's very politically connected. It's around this time in 1937 where he buys the property where Royal Hague is. For reasons unbeknownst to really anyone today, and I talked about it with club members, his, his descendants, he decides he's going to build this golf course. You know, so, so at the same time, he's funneling arms to the Spanish Republicans. He's fighting the Nazis in, in Holland. He reaches out to you know, preeminent uh, golf architecture firm in Europe at that time, Colt, Allison, and Morrison, and asks them if they'll you know, build build him a, a course on his property. And Hugh Allison becomes really the point man on this. Um, Hugh Allison is, is had largely operated as Colt's man in, in North America throughout the 1920s. Famously, had built a lot of a lot of great courses in the Midwest, Milwaukee Country Club. Kirtland and Cleveland, Davenport and Iowa, amongst others. And it also, in 1930, took, took a trip to Japan, where he's responsible for many of Japan's greatest courses today, Hirono, Kawana, and, and others. But in the late 1930s, he's back, he's back in London, and he becomes the, the guy at Royal Hague. So between starting in 1937, he starts working with Daniel Wolf to lay out a course on the property. W one of Daniel Wolf's kind of uh, edicts to him was that he really wanted this done speedily. 
he wanted to open it by September of 1939, you know, which we now know is, 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 you know, kind of when, when the, the clock hit midnight in Europe. So they start working on the course. 1938 is when um, Kristallnacht happens in Germany. There's basically a large pogrom against the Jews of Germany. And Daniel Wolf gets extremely involved, you know, in, in another kind of world event in that he's becomes one of the leaders in trying to figure out how to resettle the Jews of, of Europe elsewhere. Um, you know, he, he very presciently, you know, appreciates that there's a, a looming you know, threat of genocide with, with the Nazis in Germany. And he starts traveling, reaching out to people, trying to figure out if there is some place that they can be resettled, holding, you know, meetings at his house where, which still exists adjacent to the 18th fairway at Royal Hague and Chaim Weissman, the future president of Israel, you know, visits. So this course is being built during this really interesting time in history. And in the correspondence of Daniel Wolf, he's not only corresponding with, you know, world leaders, he, he's intermixing those, that correspondence with letters to, you know, Hugh Allison, you know, where they're talking about the details of the construction of his, this golf course in his backyard, which he's actually intending to make public for anyone in Holland who wants to play. So it, it's this really you know, fascinating tale of construction. The course opens, it's finally completed in September of 1939. Um, you know, war has broken out on September 1st. Hugh Allison isn't able to travel to the opening, which takes place on September 30th, 1939. Well, eight months later, the Germans invade Holland. Um, so really, there's only this period you know, of eight months and you know, uh, much of it the winter of 1939 into 1940 when the course is open as Daniel Wolf intended it. The day that the Nazis invaded in May 1940, uh, Daniel Wolf is actually out of town. He's gone to France on business. Um, German paratroopers cut off the bridges in the south of Holland, so he can't get back. So his wife and two daughters are stranded there. He spends the summer of 1940 trying to figure out how to get them out. He's unable to do that. He actually spends the rest of his life trying to determine a way he can rescue his family. But there's just no way for him to get to Holland. There's no way for him to get them out of Holland. He himself eventually travels to, to England and then is sent by the English to New York to try to procure arms for the British in the war effort because they, they know he has a history of, of arms procurement. Where he, he dies at a very young age in New York in 1942. Um, fascinatingly, though, his property during the war is commandeered by the head of the German Wehrmacht and the, not the occupying German forces in the Netherlands. So, That's Friedrich Christensen, yeah. Exactly right. So this high-ranking Nazi officer who's you know, in charge of the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands takes over Daniel Wolf's house, makes it effectively Nazi headquarters, confiscates you know, his things. Daniel Wolf you know, had lots of things of value in his house, including a, a priceless art collection. You know, in this in this house where. Daniel Wolf had before the war hosted future Western world leaders. You know, a who's who of Nazi war criminals visits, Goebbels, Himmler, Goring. You know, they're all spending the war visiting Friedrich Christensen at Daniel Wolf's house and, and, and the estate with Royal Hay, what becomes the Royal Hay golf course in the backyard. Goring confiscates as much of his art. He takes one of his paintings, uh, Jan Steen. For Hitler's personal collection, the golf course seems to be maintained throughout the war for for the use of Nazi officers. There's some type of reciprocal arrangement made with um, Hamburger uh, Falkenstein Golf Club. So when the war ends, the golf course is still maintained and in working condition. And the sprinklers have been maintained, and Daniel Wolf's wife and two daughters, um, after a harrowing story, they were put in concentration camps like most effectively all Dutch Jews, they managed to survive and make it back to Holland, at which point 
um, they were essentially broke, so they sold off the estate, and and the golf course was so, was sold to the members of Royal Hague, whose golf course had been destroyed by the Atlantic Wall, and, and subsequently has become the Royal Hague Golf Club, which is um, still there today, and it's one of the world's greatest golf courses. So that's kind of the, maybe the ten minute. A brief summary of the origin of Royal Hague, which is obviously very unique uh, as a golf course origin story right, in America. Most of the best classic golf courses have a very similar story. They're, they're effectively a, a built by a by a club of wealthy businessmen in the turn of the century, early 1910s, 20s, who you know, hired you know one of a half dozen famous architects to build them a club. You know, or in Europe, you know, many of the golf courses evolved somewhat organically. Over time on Linkland, but the Royal Hague has its very, very unique origin story compared to other places. I was interested to read that our friend Charles Hugh Allison actually worked as a cipher for the War Office during World War Two. What can you tell us? Can you shine any light on that? That was just a little detail you dropped in without expanding on too much. Yeah, it's interesting. So, yeah, as you said, he he did work as a as a, as a code breaker. <laughs> In some capacity for the for the war office during World War II, there's not much, as far as I know, documented on that. It's possible, you know, a cult historian like Adam Lawrence in, in England has dug up dug up more on that. But yeah, he that that was his job during World War II. And, and actually, as a side note to that, what's interesting is that the site of Royal Hague is actually where the first B two rocket was, was launched from at London. So Hugh Allison spent World War II in London or outside of London code breaking, but certainly leading up to World War II, his office was in, in Knightsbridge in London. Friedrich Christensen, who took over Royal Hague, obviously knew the terrain very well. I mean, and, and it's a perfect place to launch a rocket from because I said there's dunes ex- extending like a kilometer and a half inland from the sea, you know, that would hide any rocket launch site. And, and the golf club is at the very far eastern end of those dunes. So the clubhouse kind of sits at the low end of the course, which is the east end of the course adjacent to the 18th green. And just outside the, the entryway to Royal Hague is where the, the Germans launched their very first V2 rocket, which would have flown roughly right over the 18th tee box if you were standing there on that day towards London. Uh, and you know, sadly, I guess, was the first ever guided ballistic missile uh, attack. So it actually started right there. And in terms of, I guess, your interaction with the, the members and indeed some of Mr. Wolf's descendants, um, I, I guess more, more importantly in terms of the, the members of Royal Hay, they're aware of who Daniel Wolf is and, and the role he's played in, in their backstory, is he? I think so. I mean, I'm sure like any club, some members are more aware than others and have more interest than others. One of uh, Daniel Wolf's grandsons is is a member at Royal Hague um, to this day. He still, he still lives in the Hague and is a member there. They had a club history done a number of years ago. You know, this gives some outline of Daniel Wolf's initiative to build a golf course. So, I mean, I think anyone at Royal Hague who has taken interest in their club's history would know at least some of this story. And of course, you mentioned, uh, need to say, friend of the pod, Frank Pont has been uh, engaged over the last sort of 15 to 20 years in reinstating much of what may have been there in Allison's day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, Frank Pont's been the consulting architect um, and, and he's, you know, done a great job of, of bringing back the course to its Allison roots. Um, although, you know, the course never... It was never mucked up like a lot of courses say in America might have been. Like, as far as I know, they, they didn't really have anyone come in at some point and and change too much of it. You know, just alter the routing. Not like courses in America where it was overplanted with trees at some point. But yeah, so yeah, Frank Pontes has has really sharpened the course back up to how it should be. And funnily enough, I think there's only 23 bunkers throughout the golf course, which is another unusual statistic about Royal Hague. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it doesn't really need the bunkers to play tough. <laughs> yeah, it's certainly doesn't. Those perched greens on the false fronts generally tend to address those particular questions all by themselves. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So there's the the terrain. First of all, is is very undulating and, and challenging. You know, as I said a few times here, unlike what one might you know one might's preconceived notion of a golf course in Holland might be, this course is extremely hilly and undulating. And Hugh Allison, his style, which might not be that familiar to people in in, in Europe, and he, he didn't build anything, I don't believe, in the UK or Ireland. You know, it was probably a, lo- a little bit of a marriage between the American style and, and kind of the more minimalist cult English style. He spent all those years in the twenties you know, observing American architects like Rainers, the Tillinghasts, etc., who moved a lot more dirt, you know, as opposed to say Harry Colt, and, and that's that was kind of his style. He, he was probably in between the two. He definitely built pushed up greens and deep bunkers which he's he's particularly famous for in japan his greens tend to be subtle um but yeah yeah so i mean the 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 pushed up greens you know on the undulating terrain definitely creates a challenge in itself at royal hague and did you during the course of your research come across any communication gave uh, any inkling of what John Morrison and uh, Charles Hugh Allison came across when they actually arrived in Vassenaar the first time. Presumably they were pretty awestruck with the the contour that they had to work with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there, there's correspondence um, you know, of their, you know, of, of being very impressed with the land that, that they had to, you know, the, the template that they could work with at Royal Hague. And Daniel Wolf was very hands off. So he, he was, from an architect standpoint, probably a great client to work with. He was perfectly happy with the clubhouse you know, being on the lower land beneath the dunes. The natural place, if you wanted a, the clubhouse, would be up on top of the dunes with you know, 360 degree views and views of most of the golf course. They very clearly did not do that at Royal Hague. The golf course kind of sits down below the dune line without any type of magnificent views. And by doing that, he allowed Hugh Allison to use really the best ground on the property to build the golf course. So holes one, two, nine, ten, they all play off that that hilltop, which is what what would have been the natural site to put the clubhouse on. And it seemed to be a real race against time, obviously, to get try and get the golf course completed as the countdown to World War II approached in 1939, yeah? Yeah, and, yeah, and then that was what I found really compelling about the story is that you know, the, the correspondence back and forth between Daniel Wolf and Hugh Allison in 1938-1939 you know, is very much littered with, with urgency. Daniel Wolf is pressing them to hurry up. And, and the correspondence, unfortunately, we have is really one way. We have the Allison correspondence, but we, we don't have the Wolf correspondence to him, but so we, we but we can interpret what Wolf was, was telling him by the by what Alan Allison is writing in response. Mm-hmm. No, it's very clear that you know we have to get this done. You know, these deliveries are, you know, there's constant talk of, you know, the sod delivery is late. Um, we have to, you know, make a visit, you know, urgently, you know, it, there's lots of pressing of the contractors to to hurry up, to stay on on schedule. There's references to Daniel Wolf's request that the course be done by by September 1939, and they built the course very quickly. I mean, they effectively in about a year, year and a half. Yeah, and obviously this was done because Daniel Wolf recognized you know, the declining situation in Europe. Yeah. And come here, do we know if it's Copain were the contractor or some somebody else from the UK or is that uh, a little bit too much detail that me, me asking you about? No, you, you got it. It was Copain. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Which is which is interesting because obviously when, when Colt and Co. originally moved over to hawk their wares in, in, in Holland, they were inclined to try and get their, their usual Franks Harris contractor involved. But I know from the Canamar onwards, it seemed to be Copain all the way uh, with a bit of a revenue share on the, on the contractor side for the designers, by all accounts. Yeah, uh, offhand, and I, I, I'm not sure we even know. I, I don't know what their financial arrangement was with Copain, but, but that they were the contractor. 
One thing we didn't uh, cover off was what happened to uh, Daniel Wolf's wife and his his kid. Yeah, so yeah, I mentioned it briefly, so I'll go into more detail. So as I said, Daniel Wolf was out of the country on the night of the, the Nazi invasion. When he heard about it, he had made arrangements for his wife and two daughters to escape via his yacht to England the following morning. But the Nazis, they seized all the southern bridges with, with you know paragliders on the first night of the invasion. So there was no way for his wife and two daughters to get out. He was able to protect them from deportation for a few years. Um, because of his connections, he got them a Paraguayan passport. He got them dual citizenship, which protected them for a while. But ultimately, they were arrested and sent to concentration camp. First camp was Westerbork, which is kind of where many of the Dutch Jews were sent. It was a, a transit camp. And subsequently, they were sent to uh, Bergen-Belsen, which was a concentration camp um, as well. Part of which what protected them is where, where they were initially held. It was the Nazis treated them as well as, a, as a, some other people as kind of almost like hostages because they came from a very wealthy, prominent family. The Nazis treated them better than the average person, thinking that they might be able to trade them for, say, Nazi, Nazi war criminals at some point. In the end, that that's that is probably what saved them because they weren't sent to um, like a death camp like Auschwitz, like most of the Dutch Jews, as early as the war kind of reached its climax, and the Nazis tried to hide their crimes. They kept transferring them further east, and what ultimately happened to them, they were put on a train to be transferred to another camp called Theresienstadt. This is in 1945, and as the train was heading out there, the Allies, who were advancing ever closer, had bombed much of the railroad tracks that that train was intended to take. So this train is known to history as the lost train. It wandered for approximately two weeks through Central Europe with no real place to go because all the railroad lines had been cut until after two weeks of just kind of wandering around, it ran into the Red Army and the people on the train, many of whom had died, you know, many of whom were, were suffering of disease, were freed. And his, his wife and two daughters happened to be on the train and alive. They recuperated in a local farmhouse uh, with the help of the Red Cross. And then as the war ended, made their way back home in the summer of 1945. Now, what did they find when they, when they made their way back home? I mean, presumably all was not as they left it originally. Correct. Yeah. So the, the golf course, as I said, was maintained. The house obviously was still there. It had been occupied by the Nazi high command. Um, much of their, you know, much of their goods would have been looted. You know, their, their prized possessions were gone. The, the allies um, were using the house um, as a base of some sort, or is the military headquarters of, of, of some sort at that point? I, I don't remember all the details or know all the details. The, the, the silver lining of the story is that one of the two daughters, um, when they moved back, um, met and um, fell in love with a, a South African who was part of the, the British Armed Forces was an officer who was stationed at their house. It was a young officer stationed on the property. I, I don't know exactly what his role is, but she met and fell in love with him and they subsequently got married. And and that's kind of the silver lining to the story. And and the club member who I mentioned earlier, that's their son. He he's he still lives in the Hague and is a member there. The Wolf House is now the the residence of the Canadian ambassador. Um, to the to the Netherlands, and it sits kind of adjacent to the 18th hole. It's not the clubhouse. The the clubhouse for the World Hague was was built by Daniel Wolf as well, um, but it was uh, certainly during the war. It was kind of a Nazi officer's um, mess and house, and um, today it's the clubhouse. But the actual Daniel Wolf house is still there, and it's, it's the Canadian ambassador's house. It's along the uh, 18th hole. 
the original Hague Golf Club, which I think was in Klingendal, uh, didn't fare so well in terms of the, the building of the the Atlantic Wall defences that you mentioned earlier on. And basically as a result of the uh, fact that the club, that sorry, the golf course was in a state of disrepair, really, I suppose, after, after World War II, they were kind of left without a home as well. And and do you know much about how uh, how how it was to become that the 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 Klingendal guys would move up to Royal Hag or sorry to 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 the Wild Farm, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, sure. I I don't know that much about the original Royal Hag golf course. It it wasn't what I was interested in when I was writing the story of Daniel Wolf and the building of, of the Wild Farm or what's now called uh, Royal Hag. Um, <laughs> But yeah, certainly after the war, their course had been destroyed by the Atlantic Wall. Uh, they were looking for a new place. Daniel Wolf had, had passed away. You know, I, I'm sure in retrospect, they would think that this was actually very fortunate for them because the, the course that Daniel Wolf had built with Hugh Allison was a much superior golf course to what they were playing on before. So they, they, they lawfully you know, struck a deal with and Daniel Wolf's uh, wife, Renee, to purchase the golf course for them for themselves. So that's how that's how they acquired it, and um, that's how it is today. And still there to this day. Uh, one final question, uh, Steve: uh, What, uh, in, in t- to your mind, could you give us an assessment of the legacy that Daniel Wolf has left his story, and and obviously the. The fact that Royal Haig is consistently ranked as one of the top golf courses in the not only the Netherlands but continental Europe. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question, right? And it kind of depends on on one's interests and perspective, right? You know, for probably for our interest, Daniel Wolf's ultimate legacy, probably to his great surprise, is is his golf course that he built with you, Allison. And that's that's what's still here eighty years later and is you know, thriving to this day and it provides enjoyment for the members of Royal Hague and other members of the public who come to play it. You know, it's one of the great golf courses of the world. Um, certainly one of the, you know, the top very few in continental Europe. Daniel Wolf's you know, other endeavors, you know, which to him certainly were the, the more, you know, problem, I'm sure the more important um, aspects of his life while he was alive that he valued the most, you know, fighting fascism in, in Spain or in Germany or in Holland. Um, it's largely forgotten. And, um, you know, and, um, but, you know, probably should, should, should be remembered, you know, that that's, you know, as a human being that, that was, you know, the most important thing that, that he was involved in. And I'm sure he, the most pride in, um, but uh, obviously the part of his legacy that's the most apparent is the golf course today. You know, it's a credit to yourself and the research you put in. I was just rereading the article earlier on in preparation for our chat, and there's something quite cinematic about the tale. It it it, it feels like there's a movie in it. Uh, I don't. I don't mean to to be uh, offhand or flippant with that particular comment, but just it's pretty epic in terms of just the, all the strands that you managed to pull together. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're right. I appreciate that. You know, it's funny you say that because Lawrence Donegan, who's um, one of the publishers, editors of of McKellar, he, he's made the same comment. And you know, like, I'm, I'm a doctor. I'm not a screenwriter. So, you know, he said, oh, you should expand this. Maybe we can make this into you know, like a movie or a book. I was like, you mean you're, you're, cur- you're currently a doctor? That doesn't, that doesn't rule out the fact that you may be a screenwriter also. Yeah, this is hard enough for me to write an article about it. Remember, Dr. McKenzie didn't start as a, a golf course architect, shall we say. He had previous endeavors also. Yeah, yeah, but no, but yeah, certainly Daniel's wife, Daniel Wolf's life is one that could certainly be portrayed in a in a movie for a guy who died in his mid-40s he 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 lived a very epic um eventful short life 
the Nazi invasion of Poland in September 1939 heralded the unwelcome return of war to continental Europe. Germany would go on to invade the Netherlands in May 1940. From the start of 1941, the Lynx courses at Nordwijk, Kenemer, The Hague, Domburg and Wassenaar were seized by the occupying forces due to their strategically important coastal location. World War II significantly influenced the future of all of the aforementioned golf courses over the immediate decades. Here's Robin Bergman with a quick introduction to one of the largest building projects of the 20th century. Well, first of all, if you link it to the German occupation, uh, the military op- occupation, and and I'm saying military, uh, basically the Germans built military defense systems, which they call the Atlantic Wall, and they wanted to, to basically defend the occupied country from invasions from outside. And the Atlantic Wall went all the way from Norway to the border of Spain, huh? Uh, they were basically concerned uh, that the, the, the British and American allied forces could land somewhere. And uh, for that reason, actually, the North Sea coast of Holland, say from The Hague to, to Amsterdam, was, in their view, vulnerable. And the Americans... Uh, made a bit of a dummy move by having General Patton uh, having a large part of his army based in around Norwich there and ready to invade Holland as a disguise. And, and Patton was angry because he was, he was basic, basically taken off his command role and put in this role as, as being a dummy for an invasion. And he wanted to be, uh, of course, in, in charge of the invasion. And Eisenhower was uh, in charge of that, of course, and was in Normandy. But the that's why, actually, in the dunes and and behind the dunes, uh, behind the places where where invasions could take place, the, the Germans actually using uh, Dutch constructors built all these defense structures. Eh? So on the coast, it's batteries with cannons, huh? uh, but you have to man all these things. So you've got uh, also structures where where you where soldiers were were kept. Huh? They have to sleep somewhere and, and and have their food. So that's where we call them bunkers. Huh? That's funny. I don't know, I don't know why the German bunkers are called bunkers, but it's the same word as the golf bunkers. So construction of the Atlantic Wall began in late 1941 in response to the threat of a protracted two-front war for Germany. The wall aimed to strengthen strategic locations such as ports, cities and industrial areas along the entire 5,200-kilometre coastline stretching from Norway in the north to the Franco-Spanish border in the south the idea being that an enemy invasion could then be stopped with a relatively small military force. The construction of the Atlantic Wall halted and in some cases extinguished coastal golf in the Netherlands, in many cases forever. In one specific case, a facility and associated anti-tank defences and military bunkers has endured and in fact has been integrated into the design of one of the best courses in the country. Here's Robin Bergman again with more information. So if, uh, that's the funny thing. The Canamar has got about 130 German bunkers and uh, maybe the same number of Scottish bunkers. And you, you, you also build walls and and uh, around the area where you uh, where you think they're going to land so that's why actually a wall was built around Danford from the north of Danford going all the way to the south of Danford 
you can't land in the middle of the dunes because you need roads actually to to move to the hinterland. So Zandvoort had a, a good connection to the hinterland. Huh? The roads, railroads, Emauda had the canal, so they could easily move to the to the hinter, hinterland. So if you try to defend it, that's why you build a, a, a wall around and actually between the, the piers and Amauda is also huge defense systems. Would have been tough to land there, actually. So you had the command center on the coast and as a fallback command center, they decided on using the building of the clubhouse of Kelmer, which of course you can't find anywhere. So I found some German drawings but basically, uh, that's why you have this structure of German defense bunkers around the clubhouse, and the clubhouse was also painted green. And this was uh, done in '43. But yeah, basically, they never landed there. Uh, but we we escaped uh, from which I told you uh, from the the. The planned bombing of of the clubhouse by the RAF, so that it was executed the bombing, but deliberately, I think, uh, and what I understand from Carlos was deliberately the bombs landed on the other side of the road, which is convenient, I guess, because uh, you now still have the original clubhouse remaining intact. Yeah, but the uh, but the interesting thing that the course was. Except, uh, say, two holes, which are not now part of the three nine-hole loop. And they started actually building the new nine holes that Colt also had made, made the drawings for. They started building them in, I think, 31 or, and, and stopped in 33 because uh, there was no more funding. That's when the crisis really was felt. Banks went bankrupt, so you had to be careful where your money was. Uh, but if you, I, I've got pictures uh, of the Kenimer from uh, the, these are RAF pictures taken of the clubhouse and the area around it. With the interesting thing about that one is you see actually all the uh, bunkers being built, constructed, because it's. And you could clearly see it because the, the, the bunker structures are black and around it is all sad. So that's all white. And then the rest is grass and there's gray. So you see a gray area, darker, light gray, and then white. And then you see the square bunker. So it's very easy to see where all these bunkers were being constructed. And it was, you know, the, you had to circle around and you see the clubhouse and then the wall was. Part of the wall came from the, uh, the basically comes from the coast, crosses the, has to be able to block the railroad line, of course, otherwise you could use the railroad line as an escape. So they had a structure there that they could basically use a, a, a concrete wall to close it off. And then actually in the middle of, uh, because we had high dunes behind the, uh, behind the tee-off area of the third hole, the old third hole, uh, they basically, uh, you, you, you either build a wall or you build uh, these canals. Huh? You call them differently, don't you? Huh? Anti-tank, I call them an anti-tank uh, canal. So, you know, if a tank actually moves into that, it goes straight down. And with the wall, he can't go over. So actually, the canals are a pretty good way and then, uh, so actually, in the in the middle of the canal, you still actually have the canals still there. But Hengel wanted to keep that when we made the uh, third nine holes, and that was actually during my period in the committee as treasurer that we deliberately kept the the, the canal in there because Van Hengel said it's basically war heritage. Why shall we take it away? It's interesting to show it. And I, I think it is actually. <laughs> People don't know it, so and they think it's a, a very tough part of the of the whole. So if you play the Kelmer, and you play the, for example, the seventh hole of the the new nine holes, 
by Colt, it was designed as a par four, and the green was in front of the high. Of, of uh, and he designed it, of course, pre-war, so you didn't have the canal, but you did have the high June. And so what Van Hengel did with Penning, he basically opened the canal and, and made the green behind the. So they took away all the sound there. And so you go through an opening where you have the, the, the this anti-tank canal on the left on the left and right side of your approach shot going to the green. If you go for the green and you miss to the left or the right and you, you end up actually in the in the canal, snow water canal, that's all it's all grass. With your ball, you've got a tough shot to actually because you've got to go over the the high wall and add to the green. So it's uh, but it's not natural. Colts would say get rid of it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. And certainly, if we say it's part of a, a, a German defense system, get away with it. And uh, anyway, but it's still there. And that's why the seventh hole uh, is is a par five. But it's interesting that you basically go through the canal to the green and it had to be, be made longer because the, the design of Colt was too short. So we had to build two five par five holes. So the third, well, the second hole is also a par five, long par five, 600 yards, I think. But fairly flat. Actually, the new nine holes were used for the, the, the Dutch Opens. And the outside nine of Colt, so along the railroad, those were actually used for the Tented Village and things like that. While the clubhouse at the Kenimer appears to have had a guardian angel of sorts, the same cannot be said for the Domburg Golf Club. Founded in 1914, the course was also confiscated by the Germans in 1941. In preparation for the November 1944 Allied landing at nearby Westkapel, the on-course defences were bombarded by Allied frigates. The damage was so extensive that it took until 1955 for the nine-hole golf course to be returned from member play. Thankfully, I can report that golf is still played on this Linksland gem in the north of Holland. The original Nordvike Golf Club also came a cropper as a result of the Atlantic Wall. The course was extended to 18 holes by Harry Colt in the late, late 1920s. Unfortunately, these additional holes were the ones affected by the coastal defences. Nordvike would be reborn over the following decades as an 18-hole golf course on a new site located some 5 kilometres to the north of the original location. The new course was designed by a club member named Paul de Jong. Ken Cotton provided initial architectural oversight and assistance, with Frank Pennock seeing the project to completion. Mackenzie and Ebert are Nordvike's current consulting architects and are currently working through an onerous engagement process with the environmental and federal stakeholders in an effort to obtain permission to implement a course master plan. Martin Ebert has agreed to join me to have a chat over the coming months to further explore the links and lights on offer at Nordvike. That concludes this episode. As usual, my thanks to both Stephen Ziven and Robin Bergman, and indeed to you, the listener, for tuning in. Until the next time, happy golfing.